0: Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, uh, and I'm here with co-host Dr. Kenneth Howell, and uh, we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studio. Um, thank you for joining us. Last week, uh, those of you who listened to the program, you didn't hear Ken and I doing a Bible study, but you heard a talk given by Dr. Benedict, or Father Benedict Grischel at, actually was our first Deep in History conference. And I hope you enjoyed that presentation. If you didn't hear it, you can go to our website and and hear it at uh, chnetwork.org. But I had the privilege of uh, going last week to the funeral of Father Grishel. And the reason I did that, uh, for many reasons, but Father Grishel is a great hero for me and for our our work. He was always an encourager. He's, I was absolutely amazed, first of all, at the beauty of the cathedral in Newark. Ken, I don't know if you've ever been there. I have not. It, no. It's absolutely astounding. I had no idea. Wow. I've mm-hmm. been to a number of cathedrals in Europe and the cathedral of the, uh, I think it's cathedral of the Sacred Heart in Newark, New Jersey, is as beautiful as anything I've seen in Europe it was a gothic cathedral it's absolutely amazing took over a hundred years to complete um and that cathedral during the funeral mass for father Grishel on friday was full to standing room only and what was particularly amazing is it looked to me that over half of those gathered were religious sisters and brothers as well as priests and bishops Wow. And it was amazing to me. And, uh, you know, we we pray for the repose of, of Father Grishel and we ask for his intercession. Ken, I don't know if you had very much contact with Father Griselle. I do, do know that during his presentation that we presented on the program, he was always referring to the talk you had just given before he gave his talk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he certainly was a, a great man of uh, a great example and I think now a great saint. And so we should pray through his intercession because I, and I learned so much from him in his life, both by his example and by his teaching. Strongly recommend his books.
0: And even his first really uh, recognized book on spiritual passages, you know, is just a a wonderful book. I think that's what's called spiritual passages. I think that's the right name, but it's uh, Mm -hmm. where he takes the traditional three ways of the spiritual life, and then examines them from his own study in psychology. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a wonderful uh, book dealing with the traditional spiritual uh, steps in, in our growing closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Ken, uh, let's. We've got an email before we jump back into Romans. We took a, a, a hiatus two weeks ago into James, but this email draws us into that discussion because Marion writes, Dear Marcus and Dr. Hall, in last week's slight detour from Romans into James, there is a verse that you avoided. Could you briefly discuss James chapter 2, verse 12? So speak and so act as, though, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty end of quote. And then she writes, doesn't this refer to the freedom that Luther proclaimed when he said that a person in faith was now free from any laws, constricting their lives? Thanks, Marian. Ken, why don't you go ahead and and expand on this a little bit because she's really touching on an interpretation of justification and reconciliation. All the stuff we're dealing with in Romans, but she's touching on a theology that does indeed divide Christians, and that's understanding the liberty that we have in Christ, as James talks
1: about here, the law of liberty. What
0: was James talking about?
1: Well, in in that particular text that uh, you quoted uh, from verse 12, when he speaks about the the law of liberty, being judged in the law of liberty, um, it's necessary to ask the question, um What does he mean by law? What does he mean by liberty? And he uses the word law right in this context. If you look up in verse 8, for example, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, If you keep or fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. In other words, he's saying that the, the law that comes from the king, the royal law, is the law of love and he uses this law he uses this expression the perfect law of liberty or the perfect law of freedom also back in chapter 1 in verse 25 where he says that the person or the man who stoops down to look into the perfect law of liberty and abides in it will not become a a fruitless uh, hearer of the word that forgets everything but a doer of the word in other words the law of liberty is the law that Frees us up to be able to serve God and neighbor, to fulfill the commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's clear from chapter 1 because in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, he goes on to talk about that very thing. If you bridle your tongue and if you serve um, your religion, if you serve by caring for orphans and widows in their affliction, then you keep yourself unspotted from the world, you're fulfilling the perfect law. So the law of liberty is not a liberty to do anything you want. It's a liberty to fulfill God, God's law, because God's law gives us true liberty and freedom. I wonder if this is a parallel,
0: Ken, because I was thinking about, you know, you and I are both fathers, and we have children, and for a, a certain time of their life they're under the rules that I establish in my home. Right. And if they're going to live under my roof, they're going to live by our rules. And if they don't, then we got some problems. And yeah, at different at different stages of their life, whether they're, you know, young children, then adolescents and then teenagers and young adults, you know, how they are responsible to following those laws does change. But at some point, there's going to be a law of liberty when I give them the boot and they're out on their own.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you
0: know, they're out, you know. Well, does that mean now they can do anything they want? Well, no, because we hope that as fathers we've helped their heart be trained into understanding the rules that they need to live by, not just cuz dad yeah. said so, but because they're right and true. That, exactly.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's and
0: that's right. essentially what what happens when we are adopted into the family. Uh, because of what Christ has done for us. We are now children of God, uh, and we're free from the law in the sense of you do A, B, C, D, and E in the Old Testament, and we included circumcision, and then you're right with God. Well, you know, it's, it's the law of love that surpasses that but does not necessarily free us from the Ten Commandments or other things. It, 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 often people, and Luther did this, you know, Seeing a contradiction between Paul and James uh, in their understanding of faith and works, and how you live this out, and how you understand the law. But I want to draw attention to Galatians five one through seven, actually one through six, because here's a place where Paul and James are right on, saying the pretty much the same thing. And so here's a case where, where Paul helps expand on what James was saying, because Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's talking about, you know, falling back into... the the works of the law." But he goes on, "...now I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus..." Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. That phrase, faith working through love, is the expression of the freedom that we have in Christ, living out that freedom of faith, but not faith and therefore I can do anything I want, but needs to be expressed in the new law, which is the law given by Christ, love the Lord, your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your
1: neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that's in that expression in chapter five verse six of Galatians that faith is working through love is exactly what James is talking about in chapter two when he talks about the, the works of faith. In other words, faith naturally works itself out in the way that it expresses itself and the motivating or you might say the the air in which all of that work that work of faith takes place is love itself. I I mean, it just seems that the simple confusion
0: that caused so much division in Christianity was this idea which sparked from Luther, but of course he got it from others before him. You know, he got it from his philosophy professors when he was in school, (laughs) as they were teaching him nominalism. But this this re, uh, resistance uh, to the works of the law, this idea that if I do this, God owes me this. So in the resistance to that idea and a movement to faith alone, there was this resistance to to any rules that we have to follow. As if there's anything I have to do. No, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And so it was raising up a dichotomy that was never intended because the, yeah. the, the, the idea of there's works of the law and then there are works, the way we express our faith in love and in humility and in compassion for the poor and for the widows, which Christ called us to, those are understood differently than the works of the law, which are things, right. a list of liturgical uh, ecclesial rules that one must do. Uh, and if they're not yeah. done in love, then they aren't authentic works in that sense. They're, they're, it's too bad that there weren't two different words that were used in the text rather than the word works
1: to refer to both these yeah. things. Well, the, uh, the, the Holy Father of Pope Francis has pointed us in the direction that you're talking about right now because when he talks in his uh, in encyclical um, that was uh, not long ago, issued uh, the uh, Gaudium Evangelii, the the joy of the gospel. His his main point there is that it's by living out of the fullness of what Christ has done that you take, in a spirit of joy, you take the gospel out by both by your word and your deed. And I think that's what James is was saying, What really is uh, accords well with what Paul's talking about in our passage for today when he talks about living out the life of justification uh, in hope and in endurance and and in faith. All right, Ken, well, let's jump into Romans 5,
0: back into Romans. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. And what I'd like to do, Ken, for those that are listening that don't have the scriptures, let me read it through. It's not that long of a passage. And Ken, what I'd like you to do then, if you would is after I read it through, <clears throat> put this section in the context of Romans, all right? Uh, how does it fit into the flow of Romans as a passage? And then we'll look more in detail at the passage itself. So let me, if you would, this is Paul writing, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation.
1: Well, Marcus, this passage begins with a a, a therefore, <laughs> and uh, as old uh, Protestant preachers used to say, you know that uh, when you have a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, why wh- why does Paul have a therefore? Well, if you look back in chapter four that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, verses twenty four and twenty five, especially toward verse twenty five, you can see. It says that Christ was delivered up for our, or because of our transgressions, and was raised for the sake of our justification. And so from that, he concludes now, um, therefore we're justified by faith. That is, it's because of what Christ has done. He died and he rose again from the dead. Those are the key events of salvation history. And with those events, with the death and the resurrection of Christ, we have the fullness of redemption. Now, he, he mentions this in our passage in the words that you read. For example, he mentions in verse 9, much more being justified now in his blood. In other words, that's referring to his death, right? In the shedding of blood. And verse 10, <clears throat> while we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of his son. So he's referring to the death of Christ, and now he also says in verse 10, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? He doesn't explicitly use the words of resurrection here, but the resurrection life that he's talking about in verse 10 is the life, or excuse me, is the life through the resurrection. So now Paul is talking about the fruits of justification. Up through chapter 4, he's been talking about the nature of justification. What is it? Well, justification means being brought from the kingdom of sin and the devil into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God. And that takes place, as he's going to say in chapter 6, through baptism. He talks at chapter 6. He's going to talk about that from the very beginning when he exhorts them to remain in the Christian life because they have been baptized into Christ. Well, that justification comes through the sacrament of faith, which is baptism. That's so he begins. Now he's beginning to begin now to talk about all the great um, benefits that come from that justification. All right, Ken. Thank you. Now, Maybe to aid your
0: listening to our discussion, uh, if you go to the website, uh, deepinscripture.com or you go to chnetwork.org and you look up this program, uh, actually my son John Mark, who who uh, is, it, is the one who uh, works on all, all of our website presentations, you'll see the, the diagram that Ken and I are using in today's discussion. And, and uh, we've put it there so you can follow, follow the thought because sometimes, Ken, you know, when, when a whole paragraph of words is thrown together, sometimes it's hard to see the flow of an author's thought. So it helps to break it out, uh, almost make it look like a poem, but to help you see the flow of the thoughts. And, and when you do that, you see that Paul, you, to express himself, uses a lot of parallel words, parallel phrases. Uh, and so if you look at the diagram, you can see a couple things. And just as an overview to our discussion, we'll basically look at three things today from this passage. And the first, we'll look at, again, this justification, which Paul mentions twice in verse 1 and 9. In verse 1, he says, we are justified by faith. But then in verse 9, he says, since therefore, we are not justified by his blood. And you referred to that a moment ago. So we'll begin with that. He's got justified by faith and justified by his blood. Well, is there, are these the same? Are these different? Mm. Uh, what does he mean by that? So that's the first thing we'll look at. Then the second thing we'll look at, which is covered in verses 6 through 8 and picked up again in verse 10. And that is this idea that this justification took place while we were weak, while we were his enemies while we were yet sinners. So we'll look at that and what that means for us. And then thirdly, in this passage, these 11 verses, there is at least 11 things that he itemizes that we receive as the fruit of being justified. And Ken, I think you're the Greek scholar, that he talks about these not merely as... um, possibilities, but these are realities, present realities that the, the words express as things we can recognize that we have as a result of the justification uh, that we've received by Christ.
1: Yeah, so, absolutely.
0: so first of all, Ken, let's look at that the verse 1 and 9. He begins by saying, therefore, since we are justified by faith, And then verse 9 he says, since therefore we are now justified by his blood. Now to a certain extent the the juxtaposition of these two phrases uh, has indeed caused divisions amongst Christians off and on throughout the history of the church. Uh, You know what is meant? Are they the same? Or are they different? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did Paul have a a brain cloud and and you know in in the, in the in the juxtaposition of two paragraphs he does he contradict himself? So what does it mean that we are justified by faith and yet we are now justified by his blood
1: well, the um, all good, at least you know reasonable attempts at Christian theology and by that I mean um Catholic Orthodox. Um, you know, Lutheran, Reformed, uh, Methodist, that have a solid theological tradition have always distinguished between the objective facts of redemption and the subjective application. For example, in our common Reformed heritage, there was a book by a theologian by the name of John Murray, and it was called The uh, Accomplishment and and Application of Redemption. In other words, the accomplishment of redemption was what christ did when he came into the world and that's what i think paul is referring to in verse nine when he says that we're justified now your version said by his blood the literal greek is in his blood it could mean by his blood it could be it could have that meaning but uh, but let's just go with the literal here uh, having there much more having been justified in his blood in other words the shedding of christ's blood on the cross is what brought, made justification possible. It made us right with God. But that's distinct from the subjective reception of that objective work, and that's what I think Paul is referring to in verse 1, where he says, having been justified by faith. He's speaking of faith here in this subjective sense of my faith, of your faith, not the Christian faith or not the Catholic faith. He's talking about the subjective sense. But what is that faith a faith in? It's a faith in the blood of Christ. Now, in regard to the blood of Christ, we may recall or ask our listeners to recall that back in chapter 3 and verse 25, Paul had already said, well, let's read verse 24. He said, we're just... We are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what is that redemption? God placed Christ; He put Him out before Him as a expiation. We might even say a propitiation, through faith in His blood, for the demonstration of His righteousness. In other words. God put Christ there as the expiation for our sin, and through faith in His blood, in his bloody cross, that's how our sins are forgiven. So no, Paul is not saying that, just, that the, the justification in his blood and justification by faith are the same. He's saying that one is referring to the objective and one to the subjective. Uh, in Ephesians,
0: another one of Paul's letters, we see the same ideas it's often good Ken to compare you know other places where where Paul is speaking to a different group it's saying the same thing so verse chapter 1 7 of Ephesians where um, he has already said he had destined us in love to be his sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will but then in verse 7 he says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us so there is again he's staying what you said this is something we've received as a gift as a result we have this redemption through his blood and then again in, in chapter 2 he says uh, where we have it here um, uh, chapter 2 um, oh, verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. So again, there he's referring to the, why we were yet sinners, why we were yet far off, while we were yet divided, his yeah. blood brought us together. So that's the, as you said, the objective reality, but needs to be accepted through our faith, right. through our surrender. And Ken does this also though using a different word in verses 10 and 11, we see him speak about the reality of our reconciliation to God. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God. Later, we are reconciled. And in verse 11, he he ends with, we have now received our reconciliation. How is the word reconciliation to God compared to the word
1: justified by faith, justified in his blood? Well, this is a great question because what it, brings up is the fact that in all of uh, the language, the vocabulary of, of uh, Christian vocabulary in the New Testament, you have different windows, and the wind of reconciliation is slightly different than justification. Okay, we're going to pause
0: on that one, Ken, because that's a, it's, I think it's an important issue, because reconciliation, to a certain extent, deals with every human being, where justification might be slightly different. Let's come back to that in a moment after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. We'll be with you in just a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the Letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, Marcus's guest is former Protestant evangelical Jack Tripp. See why he left his faith tradition to make the journey home to the Catholic Church. On the next journey home only on EWTN the journey home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN for dates and times in your area log on to EWTN.com deep in scripture is brought to you by the coming home network international we are a network of inquirers converts as well as lifelong catholics helping one another grow closer to jesus christ on our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org, or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Hall, and we're looking at Romans chapter five, verse one through eleven. Ken, I paused you right in the middle of a thought. We were. You have been talking about uh, seeing justification by faith and justified by his blood as two sides of the same coin, one being the objective reality that that Christians have received as a result of the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, but that must be received by faith. And so he begins chapter 5 accepting the reality that the the people he is writing to are Christians who have been justified by the blood of Christ, but also they have accepted it by faith. And so it is a reality in their lives. But he also uses in verse 10 and 11 a different term, that we were reconciled by God. We are reconciled. Then verse 11, we have now received our reconciliation. What is the difference between justification and reconciliation?
1: Yeah, I think these are... Uh, justification and reconciliation are two different, uh, you might say, windows, verbal windows on the great work of redemption that Christ has done. In the case of justification, the question that underlies that or that's behind that answer is, how can I be right with God? How can I be a just man? How can I be, as it says of Joseph, uh, by the way, it says of Joseph in, in chapter, uh, I think it's one or two of Matthew, that he did not want to divorce Mary because he was a just man. He was a dikaios in Greek, a tzaddik in Hebrew. And that's what, it's the same word, dikaios, which is talking about here in Romans. How do I become a righteous man? The question of reconciliation, however, that's behind that that, that answer is the question of how can I get back in relationship with God? Both are necessary. In order for me to be in relationship with God, I have to be a just man, because God is a perfect and, and they cannot allow sin into his presence. But on the other hand, um, how reconciliation is, is envisioning our distance from God. And Paul tells us here in this text, in verses 9 um, rather, in uh, verses uh, verses 10 and 11, he's speaking about being reconciled to God through the death of his son. And that once that reconciliation is accomplished, then we can have confidence that we will be saved by his life. I think it's significant the way that Paul ends this section of Scripture um, when he says that not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation that's what paul he's summarizing he's saying we we this is what it means to have a relationship with god to be reconciled to him and being reconciled to god the reconciliation is done christ accomplished everything that was necessary but it has to be applied to us individually in justification yeah there's a mystery here
0: ken isn't there i mean in in part of the danger that Christians get themselves into is uh, uh, trying to nail down the mystery, the either ors, mm-hmm. when sometimes yeah. it's a both and, not not an either or distinction, sometimes it's a both and here, and you know the both and of justified by his blood and by faith, there's a mystery there. You know mm-hmm. to a certain extent one could say that every single human being that has ever exists as a result of the blood of Christ has been reconciled to God, has been redeemed, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has been redeemed.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: And God desires, second law, that every single human being be saved. He says that in in Paul's letters to Timothy. God God desires that, but that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It involves grace, it involves the mystery of, of faith, which comes from grace. It involves living that faith out in love, which comes from grace. So there's a mystery of grace working out yet in God's calling and his election and and all of these foreknowledge, all these other issues that are far beyond us, uh, our ability to understand this perfect being that created uh, the universe, who on the one hand is totally sovereign but on the other hand is totally humble. I mean, there's a mystery. How is he totally sovereign yet totally humble? So yeah, yeah. It, it should drive us to this goal of humility before the facts of our redemption.
1: Yeah, and I, I think uh, in, the, in what you're describing, the mystery is also the mystery of human, the human will. Yep. Because God, as St. Augustine so beautifully put it, God created us without us. He didn't ask our permission to be created. He created us, but He won't redeem us without us, without our cooperation and, and and the decision of our will. So when we see people, for example, embracing Christ, embracing the church, we rejoice in that. There's some mystery in there of that they've been given grace, but they've also responded to that grace. When we people see people turning away from God, there's something of mystery there we know that God has given them some grace but how much we don't know and we know that however their will is involved in turning away from God Paul is giving us the great scope of salvation here from the very beginning in which God brings us into that grace that's what he's talking about I think with the verse 2 where he talks about access or actually the oh. word pros, prosagogae could be mean, could mean an introduction We've got through Christ, we have an introduction to the faith, into the grace that we've had. But, but that's not the end of it. That's just the introduction. And toward the end of the passage, he goes to all the way to the other end. He says, Now, having been reconciled, having been justified, we'll be saved by his life. So he's going all the way to the other end of, of eternity when we stand before God in the judgment, that we will be saved by Christ's life. It seems
0: that, on the one hand, Paul is confirming to these Christians where they now stand in Jesus Christ as a result of the blood of Christ and their faith. The danger is, and we see this today, is that we can take our salvation for granted. Um, We can become presumptuous. And it seems to me, Ken, that that's the reason in the, the second part of this passage that I want us to focus on, and that that's the reason that he in, in several cases here, he reminds them that all of this is, was done while we were yet weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies to God, to remind us, to always drive us to our knees, that this all mm-hmm. is all, even our faith itself, all of this, is because of God's love and His mercy, uh, mm-hmm. while we didn't deserve any of it,
1: yet He loved us. Well, this is uh, this is really uh, profound when you think about this in the context of the human experience. My my friends who are priests, uh, they talk about people that come to you know confession, obviously not identifying any sin or any sinner, but when they talk about the human dilemma, what they constantly, I constantly hear them saying is something I felt myself, how unworthy we are to come before God. This seems to be deeply imprinted upon the human heart. So when people come to confession, it's not just because they're Catholic, it's because they're human, that they have this, how could God receive me or accept me? Now, there's one way to deal with that problem. Actually, there's two ways one the first way is the way of that a lot of people fall into and it's what you said it's presumption and that is yes i'm a terrible sinner but but god is so merciful that he just won't ever condemn me because uh it's either that god is merciful or you know but i'm not as bad as the next guy you know so i mean i i haven't i'm not as bad as i could be now the other way though is to say i'm a sinner and it's hopeless <laughs> without god I'm, i i won't make this God, have mercy upon my soul. And that's what people are doing when they come to confession. A priest just recently reminded me of that in confession when I was falling into that other danger of, well, you know, I'd, I'm, not, I'm not worthy to come to God. I don't know what to do. The priest then says, you're coming to God right now. In this confession, you are laying yourself before God, and you're saying, God, have mercy upon me a sinner. It reminds me of that passage in chapter 18 of Luke that tells the publican and the, uh, the, the tax, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the tax collector can only say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. This is the posture in which the Christian or anyone comes to God to say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And it's precisely by God having mercy upon us that we now have hope, hope of being better, hope of eternal life. I think that's one of the greatest things that Paul says here in verses 3 through 5. In other words, he says that it's this hope that inspires us, that moves us on to be able to place our trust in the grace of God, in the mercy of God, even in the midst of our trials. Can the verse
0: that keeps me going whenever I think about entering into the confessional box is Hebrews 4.15 in which the writer of Hebrews says for we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And I mean how many of us in uh, you know, we say every Sunday in the Mass when we do the the traditional confession. Uh, you know, yeah. when we say, "In my thoughts, in my words, in what I have done, and what I have failed to do, yeah. and the temptations that run through our minds." Some of them, we would we would hate to mention to anyone. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> But it says that Jesus was tempted in every respect yeah. as we are, yet without sin. And so there is his mercy. That's why it says in here, in the verse we're looking at, that Christ died not for the worthy,
1: but for the ungodly. He died for us. Yeah. The uh, Boy, I hope that every one of our listeners might grab on to that verse that you've just mentioned. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was tempted in every way like us, except he didn't sin. It was without sin. In other words, that's the high priest that's waiting for us in the confessional booth. It's not just the human priest. That human priest is representing the high priest who is Jesus Christ. And that's what gives us hope, because that love that is waiting for us is what Paul speaks of back in chapter five, verse five. He says, hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is given to us. All right, what I'd like to do now for the rest of the
0: program is talk about the fruits that Paul enumerates in this passage that are true of Christians as a result Mm -hmm of being justified by His blood, and then our response by grace through faith, which is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. We've been saved by grace through faith and not through our works, lest anyone should boast. We re- that's the whole point. It's why we were yet sinners that we've been justified. And as a result of that, he enumerates at least 11 things in this short 11 verses that we have as a result of the graces of this justification, this reconciliation. Ken, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run down the list of the 11, and then, Ken, go back then and point out a few things, if you would, that are brought out, especially in, in the uh, in the language of the text. You know, if, you've, if you're wondering, well, so what? I've been justified by faith. What has that brought into my life? Here are 11 things that Paul says we have as a result of our justification. Number one, which is in verse one, we have peace with God. Number two, in verse two, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Number three, we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Number four, we rejoice in our sufferings. Number five, those sufferings produce endurance. Number six, that endurance produces character. And then he also says that character produces that hope, which we already talked about. Number seven, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Number, excuse me, that's yeah. the number eight, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Number nine, down in verse nine, we have we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Number ten, in verse eleven, we are reconciled to God, and then number eleven, we rejoice in God. Those are all the mm-hmm. fruits that we have as a result
1: of this justification. Yeah, well, this is part of the the beauty of. Uh, of our Christian and Catholic faith, that God does not want to solve the world's problems by laying down another law. He wants to do it through the transformation of human beings. Uh, to give you an example, I've been reading a book lately that uh, by Matthew Spaulding, which I rec- highly recommend to people. It's called We Still Hold These Truths. It's about the founding of America, the Constitution, and what it means. Mm-hmm. But in this book Spalding is making the point that there are people that don't believe in the constitution. Uh, they actually don't believe in those principles. Now, one of the principles that our country was founded on was this biblical idea that you have in order to have a good democracy, you have to have a virtuous people. Yep. If people are not seeking to live virtuously, the democracy will fall apart.
0: Yeah, John Adams. 90- John Adams made a big point of that, didn't he? John Adams. Yes, he did. Yeah, you know that this democracy depends upon a populace that is religious and moral.
1: Exactly, and George Washington reinforced this in the in his inaugural addresses. Paul is saying the same thing here. In order to live a life that is pleasing to God, ultimately, that's our goal is to please God. But even a life that's good in this world these are the characteristics that you have to have he's saying they're available through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ which is applied to us through our baptisms that's what the that's the sacrament of faith out of baptism the seed of faith is given and we grow it grows through time and then we have all these things that you mentioned the peace the access the hope But even in our sufferings, we learn endurance and character. Now, I particularly find myself drawn to that particular feature because when he says in verse 3, we rejoice, we exalt even in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces endurance, or um, patientia, the the way they translate it into Latin, which we get patience from. In other words, in our tribulation, living in the Messianic era, Suffering for Christ, even that works something good in us. And because the more that we endure, the more our character is uh strengthened. And when we see our character strengthened, then what do we have? Well, he goes back so around the circle. He says, We have hope now, because we see that we're growing in God's grace. And that's of course what we hope for our one one another. That's what we hope for our, our audience, for everyone that we're growing in that character and therefore we're going to have greater hope in our lives that we will indeed be finally saved through his blood. I'm going to throw a verse in here for our audience,
0: which uh, Ken, I never saw before when I was a Presbyterian. Um, I didn't purposefully ignore it, but I didn't see both sides of the equation that Paul emphasizes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It's quite a profound verse. I I didn't recognize the profundity before, but I think as I've grown to appreciate my own Catholic faith, I'm, I'm finding this verse so significant that he says in verse 29 of Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. As a Presbyterian, I only saw the first half of that equation. You know that for the sake of Christ you should not own, that we should believe in him, the faith that we were given, all the things it talks about. but as in the passage Romans 5 he says, there's another side of our journey with Christ and that is suffering for his sake. They are both equal and essential aspects of of our walk with Christ.
1: Well, I don't have an English version in front of me, but I'm glad you pointed us. This. this expression in verse 29, uh, <clears throat> what does it say in your English version has been given to us?
0: He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not yeah. only believe in Him, but also suffer for His
1: sake. Well, the... Uh, let me translate that a little bit differently, just to make a point here. When he says what's been given to us, he says it's like he's been saying this living in behalf for Christ. What does it mean to live for Christ? That's kind of what he's saying. Well, what does that mean? It means not only believing, but also suffering in His behalf. Because what hap- What Paul is saying here is this, and this is so what's so beautiful to me about the Catholic understanding of salvation. It's not just a legal transaction, it's an actual entering into a deep relationship with Christ that shares in what Christ has experienced. What did Christ experience? He experienced suffering upon the cross. So therefore we're going to experience our crosses, our suffering, uh, because that's what salvation is. It's entering into the very life and experience of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that Yeah,
0: that emphasis on verse 4. In Romans 5, about suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The flow of that, that all came as a result of faith. You know, when I was a non-Catholic, and I always pointed out all the bad popes, and bad bishops, and bad cardinals, and bad priests, and bad throughout history, and used that as an attack against the church, I missed the point. As Paul says, and I can't remember where, where he says the reason we have this history is for our benefit, is that anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ and has followed in service to Jesus Christ is inviting suffering, is inviting the spiritual battle through which God, our Father, wants to cre- recreate our character so that we can become the yeah. people he wants us to be. And so when we look through history, we see people that fail Sadly, we see people who were given the option through faith but failed through endurance. They failed, and we don't point a finger. It should be, to them, it should be a reminder that every single one of us can equally fail Mm. if we want to follow Christ. Hey, if you don't want to suffer, the only way out of that is to back off from your faith in Jesus Christ because if you are going to follow Christ that invites the spiritual battle because he wants us to grow in grace, to grow in endurance, to grow in character so that we can indeed have the assurance of hope.
1: Well, I think that um, it's amazing to me how how relevant this is to our world today. The question that any Christian, any professing Christian has to ask is, am I following Jesus Christ so that he will do something for me. Those those popes that lived, or those bishops, or those cardinals that lived luxuriously in the past, in the times of the Renaissance and so forth, they were using religion. They weren't religious. They were using religion yep. for their own benefit. And don't we find that today? People using religion for their own benefit, rather than, in the way they conceive of serving God, rather than serving God by embracing whatever it is that God has for them, whether that's living a life of suffering or in some other way. Um, you know, I'm reminded of what you were saying there. I'm reminded of recently, I've, the last few months I've been translating uh, St. Cyprian of Carthage's The Unity of the Catholic Church. I was just translating again and commenting on chapter nine of this when he quotes from this famous text in second john or first john where he says he's talking about the heretics he said they went out from us because they were not of us and he also quotes first corinthians paul eleven nineteen, 19 where paul says it is necessary that there be there be heresies among us that those who are approved may become manifest so there's going to be false believers within the church, and, and there's God is going to send persecution and difficulty to the church precisely to, to test our faith, to, to give us that endurance, that proven character, so that we will stay faithful to the very end. Because remember what Jesus said, it's he who endures to the end that will be saved. It's not he who enjoys it now, it's he who endures to the end that will be saved. And that's why God gives us this peace and this joy so that we can endure the
0: end. One of the things just in closing from this passage is that if any of us feels inadequate before God in the privacy of our prayer closet and we wonder if we can lay before him the concerns, we need to remember what Paul says here that we come before God because we have peace with him. We've received his grace. We have his hope, the grace that helps us through the sufferings. His love has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. And as a result in verse 11, we can rejoice in God because of these great gifts he has given us. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Marcus. Enjoy the thank you. And uh, all of you, thank you for joining us. I hope that this is encouragement to you. Please go to deepinscripture.com. Uh, or chnetwork.org uh, to, to look at the more programs to find out what our apostolate does. But we'd also love to hear from you. Please let us know your questions and God bless you. Look forward to being with you
1: again next week.